0: This message was presented at the GYC 2017 conference, Arise, in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. We're not officially starting. I think people are still trickling in, but I do want to improve our time. don't want to waste any precious moments that we have, so just curious, how many of you were here for all four sessions yesterday? Wow, very good. How many of you were here for three of the four? All right. How many of you were here for two? All right. And then one yesterday. Okay. And then how many of you, this is your first time to this seminar? Okay. So we got a good mix. That's good. So uh, I was a teacher for some time and we have a few minutes, so I'm going to just get a little bit of feedback. What's for those of you who were at any of the seminars yesterday, just call out. What's one thing that you learned or that you remember <laughs> from yesterday? Anyone? Don't buy a new car. car? <laughs> Alright, there's more where that comes from today, actually. Yeah. Then, um, question, are, are, are first or yes, okay. So uh, Ellen White does give the counsel we should take care of our own needs and then the surplus we can give back. Yes? Don't be a burden to the church. Okay, the, the, don't be a burden on the church. So take care of yourself so you can help others, right? Instead of requiring other people to help you. Very good. Yes, sir? Teach your children the value of money. Teach your children the value of money. And what's a good way or one of the most important ways to do that? Work. Work. I mean, it's easy for me to say now, right? Because I've got my kids. When I was a kid, I'd be like, no. <laughs> but uh, I am thankful that I have had opportunity to learn to work as a young young person. So, any any others? We got a few more minutes Over here. Don't invest in Bitcoin. Invest in Bitcoin. <laughs> now, uh, you know, I want to be fair, right? Um, was it okay that you know I was I wasn't too hard on it? Uh, yesterday. I hope I was being a little bit of balance. I'm not against cryptocurrencies, you understand. I'm not against Bitcoin. I'm not a hater. I just think there's a lot of speculation going on and that can be dangerous. But the technology, I have nothing against technology. I think it's great. I uh, just want to clarify. All right, any, anything else? Back there. Okay. We need to be willing to labor, work hard for, to earn money. No uh, no there is no such thing as a perfect investment, that's right, apart from investing in the bank of heaven, which means giving to the work of God and things like that. Yes. Be content. Be content. Thank you. That is an underlying principle we have to remember. All right. It is 9.15 and 20 seconds, so we are ready to go. Are we good in the back? Okay, I think our crowd is thinning out, so let's pray, and then we'll begin our final session in our personal finance seminar this week. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, thank you so much for bringing us together again after a good night's rest, for all the blessings we've received here so far at GYC, and also for the practical counsels that we have been discovering from your word and your Uh, inspired counsels, we pray that we might apply them and that we might be financially fit, not for our own personal gain, but for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to try to get real practical today. Hopefully it's been practical up to now, but this one, it's like all about what we can do today. So consider the ant, Real Ways to Save, Session 5. And hopefully, depending on how eloquent I wax and how the Spirit moves, there might be a little bit of time at the end today for some questions from the audience. I know I've been going over every time. But at least you've been getting your money's worth, hopefully. So savingthecrumbs.com, for those of you who are here for the first time, this is the personal finance website my wife and I write on. That's the website. You can read for more information. Uh, GYC 2015, two years ago, we, uh, I did a seminar there. What I'm sharing today is brand new. It's not found there, but there's a lot of stuff there that's not uh, mentioned this week. So we get our title for this session from this passage in Proverbs 6, verses 6 to 8. Go to the ant thou sluggard, consider her ways and be wise, which, having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. Great nature object lesson that the Bible brings out. And what's the lesson that we're we're supposed to learn? The ant is no sluggard. The ant is diligent, and what does the ant do diligently? Provides her meat in the summer, so meaning, up, meaning it saves up. The ant knows how to save during a time of plenty to provide for a time of need. Gathering her food in the harvest, presumably, right, when the winter comes, they have something to eat. And it's fascinating here that they do it with no guide, overseer, or ruler, meaning nobody has to tell them to go and provide for the future. It's in their nature. It's just what they do. And we are uh, counseled to emulate, to learn from the ant. And so I want us to think this session here about how we can build in savings into our regular lifestyle. So that saving is not a once in a while activity. It's not like a once in a while diet where like I have to fit in this dress for this event. I'm a bridesmaid or whatever for my sister's wedding and I have to fit in this dress. So I'm gonna like really starve myself and it's like once in a lifetime experience. That's not how it works. Go to the ant. It's a consistent, continual, regular activity uh, to provide and to save. how do we do that? Well, actually, before how do we do that, uh, the Ministry of Healing, page 206, paragraph 2, I really like this passage. Many despise economy, confounding it with stinginess and narrowness. You've heard that. I mean, I have now come to wear the badge, or, or I have come to take the term cheapskate uh, and wear it with honor, because uh, I guess i that's what I am. Um, I'm very frugal i prefer that term but for a better word sometimes i'm cheap and so people say that's being stingy narrow whatever yeah it's possible to go too far we don't want to be uh scrooge but at the same time we have to understand that without economy without frugality economy is consistent with the broadest liberality without economy there can be no true liberality If we want to give to God, we got to have something extra in the first place. And we're not going to have extra if we're not being careful with our money. And here it is. We are to save that we may give. So that's the reason. We're saving not primarily for our own needs, even though that is part of it. But it's ultimately so our needs are taken care of. We're not a burden on other people. And we have a surplus so we can be the lender, not the borrower. You know, Even in the secular world, when we talk about wealth building, there is an indicator, the greatest single indicator of whether you're going to be wealthy or not, and it is not your income level. It is not the rate of return on your investment, and it is not the type of investments that you have. The single number one biggest predictor of whether or not you're going to be successful in building wealth, you know what it is? It's your rate of saving. That is the single most important factor. Because you might earn a million dollars a year, but if you spend 99% of it, you're not keeping very much. You're not building any wealth. So I like to put it this way. Wealth is not determined by how much you earn, even though a lot of times that's what we associate. Oh, he's a doctor. He must be rich. Well, that's not always the case. If you talk with the students uh, or doctors with gigantic student loans, you'll realize, hmm, um, <laughs> The picture is not always what is immediately meets the eye. And also, wealth is certainly not determined by how much you spend. We're going to talk a little bit about that at the end of this presentation. It's not the appearances that matter. It's actually how much we're literally able to put away. And that's what the ant does. And we do it, the motive for the Christian, is so that we may give to advance the work of God. So let's, um, I want to tell you the story first about Mr. Theodore Johnson. He worked for UPS in the 50s. And he maxed out his, uh, his annual salary at the rate of $14,000. Now, this was back in the 1950s. So with inflation, $14,000 in today's money would be quite a bit more than that. But that's not really the big part of the story. The part of the story is that Mr. Theodore Johnson... He came up with a plan. He said, this was his reasoning, his reasoning process was, if Uncle Sam, the government, decided to tax me, raise my taxes, I don't know what the rate of taxes were back then, but let's say it was 20%, he was using 20% as his figure, if the government decided to tax 20% of my income, I would not be happy, I would be upset, I would complain, but at the end of the day, I would pay the 20% tax. So if I somehow would be able to conjure up the ability to pay 20% in taxes to the government, why can't I do that to myself? And so he came up with this idea of I'm going to tax myself 20%. He's not a Christian, obviously. He's not talking about tithing or that wasn't what he was reasoning, but he was thinking from this perspective of I'll just pay myself the 20% tax instead of paying Uncle Sam and I'm going to save that money and I'm going to invest it. So, later on in the 1990s, he was an elderly gentleman at this time. It became known what his net worth was because he was entering into the realm of philanthropy. So, anyone want to venture a guess? $14,000 peak annual salary, saving 20% of his annual take home pay for approximately 40 years and investing it. What do you think was his net worth? Any guesses? Five? Five billion, wow. Okay, all right. 500,000, okay, half a million? Two million, anyone else? 1.5 million, is that what you said? Let's take a look. Isn't that worth with 70 million dollars? I don't know what he invested in, I suppose he probably had some UPS stock maybe, but because the reason why this number came out into the public was because at that time he decided to give away $36 million, and eventually that was his initial gift, and then later on he he gave more, I believe. So, yes, we might say, yeah, but $14,000 back then in the 50s is not worth the same today. Well, look, if you look proportionally, 14000 uh, to $70 million, that's a huge difference. And how did he get there? He got there by saving 20%, taxing himself 20% consistently for 30 or 40 years throughout his entire career. So what can we learn from Mr. Theodore Johnson? Number one, he lived within his means. And when we say live within his means, he didn't simply spend less than 100%. He spent less than 80%, and he saved 20%. So he saved 20% regularly, he invested consistently, and here's the whole point. He gave generously. Obviously, for us as Christians, we're not about hoarding up a giant sum of money to give one big check later. I'm not proposing that's what we do. We should be paying faithfully our tithes and offerings now. But if we are faithful, I believe we can also have a surplus. It might not be 70 million, right? But even if it's 7,000 or 70,000 or whatever number, if it's a surplus we can give back to God, I want to have that. For the sake of the gospel, I want to be able to give generously. So we learn from Mr. Theodore Johnson, you don't have to have a gigantic net income to build wealth. And how did he do it? By being like the ant, right? Consider the ant, So here are our numbers. I shared this a little bit in our first presentation yesterday for the year 2016. This is my personal, my family's uh, percentages. And if you care to know these things, if you go to my blog, you can find out the exact numbers. Actually, how much we we earned, how much we spent, gave, and saved. And if you wait a couple weeks, I'll be giving my financial report for the year 2017, uh, which will be enlightening. So we in our family in 2016, the last full calendar year, we had a 25% rate of spending. So this includes everything involved in living our life. We gave away 26% and we saved 49%. And we talk about what we're saving in, what are the types of things that we're, uh, our goals and, and all that kind of thing on our website if you want more information. But what I'm trying to illustrate today, we're going to be focusing right here. Because if we can get this number down, our expenses down, it opens up the rest of the pie chart for the other two. We have control, uh, or rather, let me put it this way. Expenses are the more difficult aspect to manage that we need to start, and then it flows into the rest. So how do we do it? How do we cut our spending down? Thank you very much. How do we cut our spending down? How do we maximize the effort? Because everybody, we want to save money. There's not a person in the world who doesn't want to save money. But it's hard. At least that's a perception. We feel the, the strain when we think about it. We think like, oh, I have to go run 100 miles to lose weight. That's the same feeling, right? So how do we maximize the effort? Get the most gain for the least amount of effort. Number one, first, we need to be willing to change our behavior and lifestyle. Yes. But... We need to also realize that the likelihood of success is greater the less lifestyle adjustments are required, okay? So we got to be able to play the mind game. We always hear people talking like, okay, you need to stop, you know, uh, drinking your Starbucks every day. Good Adventists, caffeine-free only, right? Starbucks. And everyone's like, you need to stop doing all the the 100 little things that you're doing all week long to save $2.50 every time and you'll end up with, you know, saving $200 a week. Well, look, that's making like 15 or 20 or 100 decisions all throughout the week. That is extremely taxing and it's exhausting. Not to say that you shouldn't make those changes. We need to be willing to make those changes, but we need to understand that the greatest chance of success is not starting there where you have to make 1,500 little decisions, but to start in the places where you can make one big decision and save forever from now on. Okay? We're going to talk about how to do that. So we want to focus where we get the most return for the least effort. It might sound like cheating, but we're trying to win this game, and that's, that's within the rule, rule book. Okay? We can do this. So in order to do that, first we have to create our detailed monthly spending plan. We talked about that yesterday in our final session. The the savings plan and the monthly spending plan. We need to know where our money is going. We need to know the exact categories of what we're spending on. And we need to have a clear picture of how much we're currently spending. So if you don't know how much you spent last month, the first thing you need to do when you go home is you pull out all your receipts, your credit card statements, your bank statements, and create. A list of all your spending for the previous month. And if you can go back farther than that, even better. So how much do you spend on rent, mortgage, insurance, cell phone plan, food, groceries, eating out, Netflix, whatever it might be. List it all out, categorize them, because then once you have that chart of your spending, we're going to look at the biggest and the recurring costs. The bigger it is and the more recurring it is, that's where we're going to focus our effort. All right, Because you make one decision there and it can be worth more in savings than a thousand decisions at Starbucks or in the grocery checkout line. So, here's our numbers. Okay, This is from my household in 2016 to give you an example of how this works. This is not my entire monthly spending. I'm just giving you four areas. This is just four lines in my budget. Four out of, I don't know, 12 or 15 or whatever it might be. And these are some of the biggest ones in most people's uh, budget. So first, rent or mortgage. For everyone in the world generally, here in the United States especially, housing costs, rent and mortgage, is generally the number one biggest expense in everyone's budget. Anywhere from 25, your 25 is on the low end, up to 30, 40, maybe even 50% of your take-home pay goes to pay your, your rent or your mortgage. So for my area okay i have to compare apples with apples so in my area in near chattanooga tennessee for a house of my size which is about 1400 square feet it would cost about 1200 dollars to rent so if i was renting my house basically it would cost me about that much but what how much do i really pay you already heard the story yesterday i talked about we paid off our house in two years we actually pay zero dollars because we paid off our mortgage I have an asterisk there. I'm going to come back to that because there's more to that story. So utilities, typically in my area, for a house my size, on my elect- with my electric company and-, and my water company, generally is about $200, average throughout the year. For me, we pay $10 a month because we have solar panels, so we don't actually pay, and the $10 is for our water bill. That's how much it costs every month. And some of you in California or here in Phoenix is like, I have $10 for water? Like, what in the world? That's like one bottle of water. But that's how much it costs in Tennessee. We have more water than we know what to do with. So beyond that, we have automobile. And for a household, typical household like mine, husband and wife and a child, generally they own two vehicles. And they generally own two vehicles with car loans on at least one vehicle. And they commute to work. So this $1,000 uh, is an average. It might even be a conservative average for my area for a household with two vehicles with average mortgage, uh, not mortgage, car loan and gasoline and uh, you know whatever other associated car costs. Now, our average has been $24 a month. Why? Because we own one car and we hardly drive. We consolidate our trips and we are fairly uh, efficient in how we drive. And we drive an old car. So we don't have a loan, and we don't spend a lot on transportation. But we did recently buy a minivan, and so this number will go up in 2017. But this is 2016 numbers. And then cell phones, all right? So we both, my wife and I both have iPhones, so we're not in the stone age. <laughs> but for AT&T, we looked it up. It cost about $120 for the equivalent plan that we had. Two iPhones on AT&T usually use about $120. But we pay $40 a month for unlimited everything. Also, it's on Cricut, wireless. We'll talk about that later, which also runs on the AT&T network. So we get the AT&T coverage, but we pay one-fourth the price. So if you add this all up, okay, this is just comparing four budget items from our budget. We we spend $74 a month on what in a typical household can be as much as $2,500. Do you, do you see how this is a lot easier to accomplish than trying to save the equivalent amount by just cutting down on my grocery bill or my Starbucks or whatever little nickels and knickknacks that I might be spending money on? You're going to be making like 30,000 decisions to save this much money. And now back to the asterisk here is that, you know, for us, this is not entirely the, the, the picture. Because we actually get paid. Our property, we actually have a rental unit. And so we actually get rent back from our house. So we actually get you know, another $650 uh, for rent. And we have solar panels, so we get credit. So we actually, in the end, if I'm being totally transparent, this number here would actually be a negative number. So, But at any rate, that's not what normal people live at like. So I'm just going to use these numbers to compare. So let's multiply this out, okay? For a whole year and now we really see the difference. So in 1 month, the typical cost in our area about $2,500 that adds up to about $30,000 in a year. That's very typical in many parts of the world for a family with a mortgage, car loan, you know, two cars, you know, AT&T or Verizon or whatever, you just add it up and it's like this is the kind of stuff that we we just assume is the cost of living life. Cell phone bill Auto-pay, right? Our home mortgage is just automatic. Every month, this wa- the money just flows out. We don't feel the pain. We feel the pain when we go to the grocery store and we load up our grocery cart and we see the $100 bill or $200 bill or $400 bill at Costco or whatever, and we think that's where we're going to save the money. Well, look, I'm telling you, don't start there. Because look at how much we save by focusing on just four areas, right? At the end of the year, we are... Saving $30,000, just about $29,000 compared to the typical cost in our area. So how do we do this, right? So this is just my numbers to give you a picture of what's possible. Your numbers clearly are going to vary. Your mileage may vary, of course, as they say. So let's get specific now. Let's start with housing. This is the number one biggest expense in most people's budget. So you have to look at this. You have to look at this in the budget, because it might be as much as half of uh, what you're spending on. So this, I think, is one of the fundamental principles we have to remember, is what I like to call the law of empty space. And what the law says is that whatever space we have, we will fill. You understand what what this looks like? (laughs) So how how do you solve this problem? You shrink your space, and you shrink your spending. Some of you might be saying, oh, but I can't do that. Well, maybe you're in a situation where that's not necessarily easy to do. But I will venture to say it's easier to make this one-time decision and then live with it more than having to keep up a consistent rate of frugal spending every time you go to the store for 5, 10 years, 20 years, whatever it might be. And also, home ownership correlates with lifestyle inflation. So I'm not saying don't buy a house. But what I am saying is you have to be mindful to buy a house with this concept in mind. Because how do people buy houses? They buy houses with their feelings, not with their brain. They look at a house and they say, I love this house. This kitchen is so big, right? I have a walk-in closet. Oh, and there's a walk-in closet for me and a walk-in closet for him. So, you know what, you know what the woman is thinking? He doesn't need all that space. So I can fill up all my closet and half his closet. Man, there's a lot of space. But you understand how this works. Like, I'll just give you an example. My house, it's a fairly small house, 1,400 square feet. My house is just one open floor plan. We have our living room, and then we have our dining room, and then we have our kitchen. But you know, if you move up to a house, and it's a three-bedroom, two-bath house, so if you move up, let's say our house was about $185,000, let's let's say I buy a $300,000 house, it might still be a three-bedroom, two-bath house, but the square footage goes up, might be 2,000-something square feet. But you know where the space goes? You're not getting three more rooms, bedrooms. What happens is now, instead of a living room, and a dining room, and a kitchen, you have the kitchen, you have the eat-in Eden, Eden kitchen, you have the formal dining room, you have the den, and you have the living room. And you can't leave all that space empty. You realize. So how many sets of couches now do you need? At least two, right? <laughs> and if you're really, really into it, it's like, you've got all this extra wall space, so I got to fill that, because I have to make my house look like Pinterest, What else am I gonna do with all this space, right? So this is what I'm talking about. The law of empty space, we're not thinking about it in the sense of, hey, how will I buy a house most efficiently, we're buying a house to say, what can this tell other people about how nice I am or how fancy I am, right? It becomes a, a projection of ourselves, and I say, there's a part of that. We want to be able to rightly demonstrate a tasteful, classy life to properly represent our faith. I believe that is important. I'm not saying live in a dumpster. What I'm saying is when you think this through, think what you actually need and what you actually will use and buy as little as you need. Buy efficiently is what I'm saying. Because even though, I'll use myself as an example, even though I might be a cheapskate, I am subject to lifestyle inflation as well. And here's a, here's a perfect example. This is a storage shed that I had to buy earlier this year. It cost me $3,000. And what is it? What do I do with it? I store my junk in it. I mean, it's not junk, right? It's my lawnmower and my gardening equipment and there's stuff, valuable stuff. It's a 10 by 16, so it is 160 square feet. Do you realize that there are people who live in houses this size? The tiny house movement, you've heard about it. And I've got a tiny house on my land for my lawnmower, so you know, you might think, oh man, this guy saves so much money. Like, not really, not really. So even for me, uh, buying a house, like, okay, I bought this house. Oh, I got an acre of grass I have to cut. So I can't do this with a push mower. You know what I'm saying? Like, okay, I got to buy a big mower. Oh, you got to buy a big mower. You got to have the tools to change the belt. You got to have the oil change kit. You got to have the gas cans. Oh, and then you got to have somebody to put the the gas and. All of this stuff starts adding up. This is what happens, right? You you move into a house, and the lifestyle inflation, it just goes whoo, like a mushroom cloud. So yesterday, some, some young people came up and said, okay, I'm in a ton of student debt, okay? Student loans, maybe some of you are in this situation. Because housing is the biggest expense in most of our budget, if you got massive loans, you will not be able to get over that unless you take a hard, fast look at your housing. So what am I recommending? Continue living like a student as much as you can until you pay that debt off. Like I'm serious about this. If you've got, I'm not going to embarrass anyone. You don't know who 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 these people are, but um, you know medical school, dental students. You know, 500000 dollars in debt. Um, you've got your work cut out for you. Like you might consider, you know, something like this for a little while. And once you pay that off, guess what? You can move up, right, into a nicer house and you can even have a house with a den and a living room. All right. So saving on housing. Number one, choose smaller housing to stall lifestyle inflation. Okay. I'm not saying everyone has to live in a tiny house. I sort of like that. I think it's sort of cool. Uh, but it's not possible for everyone. It's not. So this is how I try to measure it. And my wife and I, we, we've had conversations. Okay put it nicely we have conversations about this so when we look for a house my thinking process is whatever size i really really want i'm going to bring it a notch down just a hair smaller than what i really want because that's how i check myself because usually what we do is we say i want a house this size and then we're always like inching up the next one is just a little bit more. I mean, it's not that much more. Oh, but I get a whole thousand extra square feet, or whatever it might be. But to think, the mind game is: you start where you want, you go and notch down. And why? Because it forces us to think efficiently, to be creative, to be innovative, to use our space in a smart way, instead of going up bigger and bigger and like, okay, I'll just, I'll just buy more stuff and I'll just fill it up. The law of empty space. If you are renting, some of you are like, I'm not buying, I'm, I'm renting. Uh, the same applies. Rent a smaller place, right? But I think that's logical. But another one I think is very important to consider is consider a roommate. That's one of the easiest ways to save. I know some of us is like, okay, I've got used to my privacy, but it depends on your situation. If you really are trying to get out of debt, what are you willing, what costs are you willing to pay, right? Making this one decision can save you a lot more than in other places. Now, if you are owning, I talked about this yesterday, pay off your mortgage early, save a lot of interest and your cash flow needs. But also, this is an idea that may work for some people, not everyone. It's consider renting out part of your house. So if you can rent out part of it, you can subsidize the cost of buying that place. And number one area to save housing, I just mentioned this, if you have massive debt to pay off, you've got to manage your housing expenses because it is so big, generally. And we're going to (coughs) talk about this a little bit more later. But the emergency fund can help us save on our insurance policy. Uh, by allowing us to have a higher deductible. But we'll get more into that in a moment. So related to the house, we have to talk about energy or utilities or electricity more specifically. So in the same vein, we have to think about electricity focusing on the biggest recurring costs and working our way down. And these are the big four culprits. Pretty much, if you can control your electricity usage in these four areas, your electric bill is going to come way, 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 way down. Number one is your HVAC, air conditioning and heating. That's absolute number one. Uh, number two is the hot water heater, clothes dryer, and the lighting. Now, we'll talk about specific ways to save in those areas in a moment, but and this is our, our solar panel system. On our house, it's only, we only have 14 panels, and we have to, you have to understand something. People think, oh, solar panels, oh, yeah, you got it easy. Well, it's not just a matter of buying solar panels, because if you buy solar panels, solar panels are not super cheap. If you are not being energy efficient in your electricity usage, you might buy a solar panel system, but you might be using all of it and more, and you're not really saving that much. You're saving just a little bit. So the only way that this type of renewable energy system works is if you have it coupled with a low energy usage, energy efficient home. You understand? Because if I'm using the typical amount of electricity of a home my size in my area, I would need a double or triple size solar panel array than what I have. So you understand what I'm saying. you got to work in tandem to really save. So how do we do it? Okay, so let's look at those four big culprits in energy usage. Number one, HVAC, AC, and heating. The number one most important thing to do is you got to insulate your house. Now, this might be an initial investment. Or if you're building your own house, think this one through. Because this is one of those invisible costs that people don't think of. They just pay the electric bill, and we complain about it but whether you live in some place that's really cold or really hot the most important thing is to keep your house insulated so the hvac unit doesn't have to run as much it moderates the temperature more Uh, another thing is uh, southern exposure this is an easy trick really easy trick if you live in the northern hemisphere if you're in australia or new zealand it would be northern exposure but in the winter time the sun is low in the southern horizon Open your window shades. Don't open the window, but open the shades. Let the sun come in from the southern-facing windows, and that can sometimes raise your home temperatures, depending on how big your windows are and all that. It can raise your home temperatures sometimes as much as 5 degrees, and it saves you that much from having to use your heating system. And in the in the summer, close your shades in the hottest, hottest part of the day. Same concept. So number two, hot water heater, whether it's gas or electric, a hot water heater uses a lot of energy. And the simplest way, without changing much in your lifestyle, is to use what's called a low flow shower head. It's a shower head that puts out, it feels like the same amount of water, but uses half the amount of water. So it's a double win because you're saving on your hot water and you're saving on your water bill at the same time. And at the the same time, you're, you're just taking a normal shower. We use this at our house. It feels no different. It's just the shower head is designed in a way that the water comes out more efficiently. So that, it costs like $10 for a shower. Clothes dryer. All right. Clothes dryers, I I ran the numbers for an electric clothes dryer. Depending on the electric rates in your area, anywhere between 50 to 75 cents per load. All right. So if you're in a family and you're constantly running the dryer, every time you run that thing is 50 to 75 cents. So the quickest or the easiest way to save on that is to hang dry your clothes. We do that. You might feel you don't have time for that. So just hang dry some of your clothes. Still going to save and what's ironic really when we think about the appliance itself a lot of times we think oh i should buy a new dr- a new dryer cuz a new electric dryer or even gas dryer is going to be more efficient that's not true the electric heating element it you can't make it more efficient it's just it is what it is so a newer fancier you know bigger you know flashier with digital readouts whatever electric dryer you're not going to save any money so don't waste your money on that if you are gonna upgrade your appliance, upgrade your washer instead. And how, you're like, how does that help me with my drying my clothes? Well, a high efficient washer, whether it's a front load or a top load, high efficient washer, they spin the clothes drier. So that means you have to dry it less in your dryer, all right? And it uses less water, so it saves on your hot water heater as well. So if you're thinking about upgrading your appliance, focus on the washer, not the dryer. You can use an old beat-up dryer, and it's going to use the same amount of energy as the brand-new flashy ones. And number four, lighting. If you are still using incandescent or halogen light bulbs, you need to slap yourself and go buy LED bulbs when you go home. LED bulbs are so cheap now, they'll pay themselves off in like two years. Everyone should be using LED. I don't have to say anything else about that. All right, saving on energy. All right. Transportation. If you're a glutton for more punishment about cars, get ready. Because we talked about cars yesterday. We're going to talk a little bit more about cars right now. So here's the basics. How do you save on transportation? This is sometimes the number two or three biggest expenses in our budget. Drive less. You might be thinking, oh, how is that possible? Well, there are creative ways. Shorten your commute. Sometimes, I'll even say this, sometimes you will save more money by moving your house to a slightly more expensive home closer to where you commute to all the time than to have a cheaper house farther away. You just have to run the numbers in your situation because owning and operating and driving a car is very costly. And I'm going to make that point clear in just a moment. We mentioned this yesterday. A car is a transportation tool. It is not an appreciating asset. So as any tool, you want to buy it as affordably and as high quality as possible. And then you're gonna take care of it and you're gonna make it last as long as possible. That's how we ought to use our cars. And if you know how to fix your own cars, even better. And here's the the bottom line. The more car you own, the less wealth you'll build. There's a direct inverse proportional relationship here. The more expensive, the more number, whatever, of cars you have, the, lo- the slower your rate of wealth building will be. Why? Because your car is this vampire that's sucking your net worth, like constantly. It's just dropping every day, every day, every day. I'm gonna illustrate this with real numbers in just a second. <clears throat> so own as little cars you need. So this is, when people say, how do I save on cars? Own as little cars you need. I'm not saying buy a car like this, but that's a picture to illustrate the point. <laughs> So having two cars is better than having three cars. Having one car is better than having two cars. Having no car is the best of all. And you know, people are like, how can you not have a car? Well, if you live in a, in a city, if any of you live in big cities, I grew up in Hong Kong, nobody owns cars in the big cities. It's, it's not a big deal in certain places, but in many places you probably will need a car. So slightly used is better than new. Now, people always are like, oh, you want me to drive a beater car? No. Don't drive a beater car. But if you want a sweet spot from what I have, this is just my personal opinion, but I think it's based on some, some facts. Sweet spot is somewhere between three to five years year old car. Generally, some of them still have the original warranty on them. You can still get the new car smell in some of them. And they haven't gotten to the point where you're going to need to put in a ton of money to fix them up. So two to three year, I'm talking slightly used. And um, smaller is better than bigger. You know, this, the, in the United States, everybody wants an SUV. Um, we can be weird and not drive an SUV. And I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, if you want a bigger car, a minivan is way more efficient and cost effective than an SUV. And um, real men drive minivans, all right? <laughs> So uh, beyond that, MPG is better than horsepower, so miles per gallon is more important than horsepower. And you can utilize some of these other techniques, carpool, bike, walk, use public transport, and Uber and Lyft prudently. So you know, Uber and Lyft are amazing, it's like magic. You pull out your phone, you press a button, and a chauffeur magically shows up and takes you wherever you want to go. Can you imagine Ellen White coming nowadays? It's like, oh, you need a ride? Bing, someone shows up, she gets in, like, what kind of sorcery is this, right? But when we think about that, we think, oh, Uber and Lyft is so expensive. It's not expensive if you are using it intermittently and it uh, replaces your need to actually own a car, okay? But if you own a car and you're using Uber and Lyft, then, you know, that's not a good idea. So let's talk about the cost to own a car because I want to really prove this point to you. I'm comparing the same vehicle. This is a Honda Accord EXL V6. It's near top of the stack, comparing 2017 and 2012 model. So the sweet spot, right, by five years old compared to a brand new one. So the cash price, brand new for this model is about $32,500. For a 2012 model, costs now about $14,000. So the uh, the driver is driving the same amount uh, from year to year. Uh, and the Edmunds website, some of you might be familiar, edmunds.com is a reputable car website. They have a tool called the TCO. It's the true cost-to-own calculator. You put in the car, the mileage, and it gives you how much estimated cost to own will be in five years, estimating all the various costs. And I'll give you the graph for that later. And so Edmunds uh, estimate for a 2017 model for the first five years is this vehicle will cost $39,000 to operate. Okay? Just the first 5 years. And this one, the 2012, it cost $10,000 less. So what that means is for the first 5 years on a per mile basis, the 2017 Honda Accord cost 52 cents per mile. And notice, it is not just the price of gas. And for the 2012 model, costs. So if you're driving a brand-new Honda Accord, driving down the road, imagine every mile you drive, $0.50 gets burned up in your wallet. That's what's happening. And the 2012 vehicle, a little under $0.40. So the 2012 model, it costs 25% less to operate. And you are saving $10,000 in just the first five years and it multiplies on top of that. (coughs) So I want to show you the table. This is the actual true cost-to-own table for the vehicle that I took off of Edmunds. I know the numbers are really small. You don't need to know all of them. I'll read off the big ones. The first one here for the first five years is depreciation. And you notice that the depreciation is about $16,000 in the first five years. And if you remember, the cost of the car initially was $32,000. So in the first five years, you lose 50% 50% of the value of your car. And just as a rule of thumb, if you want to figure this, uh, a quick mental math, is your vehicle value, if you're driving about 15 10 15,000 miles a year, your vehicle value will roughly half, go in half every five years. So first five years, it goes from 30 Uh, two to sixteen thousand. In another five years, it'll lose about eight thousand. In another five years, it'll lose four thousand. In another five years, two thousand. And then your car, by that point, is gonna be worth like a thousand and you just junk it. So, sixteen thousand dollars depreciation, that's the lion's share of the cost of a new car. It's just going, it's going away to nowhere. You're just losing that value. But you also notice here, financing is part of the cost Uh, That they factor in And so one of the easiest ways To drive down the cost to own Is to not finance a car We talked about how to buy a car without loan Yesterday So you can immediately save nearly $4,000 Off of interest costs By buying it in cash Alright, so And down here, maintenance and repairs You know, the numbers here are not super high And we're going to see on the next slide How they compare With the 2012 Honda Accord so 2012 Honda Accord, you notice here, it was 14000 So in five years, again, it's about half of the, the depreciation. But losing $7,000 is a lot better than losing $16,000. That's just what the math tells me. Sorry. But down here, maintenance and uh, repairs, this is the biggest argument people have for driving a used car. It costs more to repair. Now, let me just be honest with you. A five-year-old Honda Accord is unlikely to require a lot of maintenance or repair, unless you got a lemon or something. But other vehicles, sure, maybe so. But even with that factored in, you notice here the repairs and maintenance is significantly higher for the 2012 model than the 2017 model. Mm -hmm. It is still, still way cheaper to drive the 2012 with a little bit more maintenance and repair costs than the 2017 because of the depreciation. So this is the argument that people always have, and that is, I don't want to buy a used car because it's unreliable. That is a bunch of baloney. You buy a slightly used car, don't buy a 20 or 30-year-old car, buy a 3 to 5-year-old car, and you'll be saving approximately $10,000 in 5 years, and the operating cost is 25% less, and the maintenance cost is not enough to negate the difference in depreciation. Is that clear what I'm trying to communicate? So you can buy a used car and buy it in cash, and you'll be saving both on interest uh, and operating costs. And it will also save on car insurance. Okay, Buying a used car, slightly older, will save you in car insurance, and I'll explain exactly how in just a moment. But to lead up to that, we need to talk about home and auto insurance together, because this is another big expense. So home insurance or property insurance, we have to understand how it works. Home insurance primarily insures for damage or destruction of the structure and the valuables inside your home. It's insuring the property, the replacement cost, if you will. And secondarily, property insurance also insures against liability. So if somebody comes to your house, you know, they slip onto your front doorstep and they crack open their head and they sue you, liability. Now for a business, it might be a little bit flipped. So if you're a storefront, maybe you're a cake shop or something, and you have customers coming in and out, liability is going to be probably a bigger part of your insurance than a personal private residence. But regardless of the case, uh, property insurance is primarily insuring the structure and the the valuables. And so this is how you save on your property insurance, is you need to have an adequate emergency fund that is fully stocked that will enable you to pay... (coughs) a higher deductible on the policy. So if you have a home insurance policy and you're deductible, and the deductible is the part that you are personally responsible for before the insurance picks up the bill. So if your insurance uh, looks at you and you have a $1,000 or $500 deductible, they view you differently than if you had a $5,000 deductible. And you might be thinking it's just a proportional thing like, oh yeah, you know, I'll just uh, they'll just proportionally Uh, lower my monthly premiums. It's actually disproportionate. And this is what the insurance industries have discovered. What they've discovered is that the type of people who, uh, who can afford a higher deductible overall as an entire class is a lower risk to them, meaning they're more responsible people. And they have all the charts and graphs and data to analyze this. And they, So what they realize is if you are buying a $5,000 deductible instead of a $1,000 deductible, we're not just going to give you a small price break. We're going to give you a big price break because you are not the type of customer who's going to come to us every time any little thing comes up to ask for payment. So you understand that having an emergency fund and being able to have a $5,000 deductible, it saves you forever because your insurance is going to like you more and they're going to give you a better rate. So an insurance policy, I recommend having an emergency fund at least to cover the $5,000 deductible. And that's what we do in our home, and our insurance premium comes way down. And of course, we know this. We bundle our home and auto policies together with the same provider, and you get uh, savings that way. So let's talk about auto insurance. Home insurance and auto insurance in many ways are inverse of each other. Car insurance, frequently people assume, oh, it's insurance to protect the car or to replace the car. That's not what car insurance is about. Car insurance is primarily to ensure the liability of the driver, because you know what's going to bankrupt you more? It's not losing your car. It might be 10, 15, 20,000 dollars. What's going to bankrupt you is you hit someone and they sue your pants off. That's what your insurance is there for. It's to protect you in case of lawsuit. So that's why insurance, car insurance is required. Secondarily, you can buy what's called comprehensive and uh, uh, collision coverage for your car and that's what covers the destruction or the damage of your vehicle. Vandalism, hail, a car crash, whatever it might be. And what's important to remember is that collision and comprehensive coverage might be optional in certain circumstances. So again, the emergency fund can help you save in this regard because having a higher deductible on your collision and comprehensive coverage will reduce your monthly premiums. Yeah, that's great and nice, but what's even better, okay? This is the whole point I was building up to about driving a used car. Driving an older or cheaper car reduces or might even eliminate the need to have collision and comprehensive coverage at all. You may not even need it, okay? And here's the reason why. Let me give you my numbers. So this is from Geico. I actually pulled this numbers, these numbers from Geico a couple weeks ago. This is my car. I own a 2002 Honda Accord. So it's an old car. It's worth $2,500, according to Kelly Blue Book, and then that same 2017 Honda Accord that we've been talking about, $32,500. Well, here's the interesting thing. If you are financing or leasing a car, you are required to have comprehensive and collision coverage. You know why? Because you don't own the car. You're paying someone else off who is loaning you money, they own the car and they say, I need to protect my investment so you have to buy comprehensive coverage to replace the car in case it crash or something is damaged. So for this vehicle, it costs $100 a month or $1,200 a year for insurance to cover that car. For my car, with GEICO, liability only is $35 a month. And if I add comprehensive coverage, it doubles to $70 a month. So here's here's the big thing. If my car is only worth $2,500, why should I be paying $840 a year to replace the car? Look, I'll just be frank with you, if my $2,500 car crashes today, I have the money to go buy another one of the equal value tomorrow. That's why I have an emergency fund. My car is worth so little that it makes no sense for me to pay that maximum amount for comprehensive coverage so i just get 35 dollars a month insurance for liability so i don't go bankrupt if someone sues me but if you look at the difference driving an older car and i'm using my car of course if you have a slightly newer car the numbers might be a little different the difference between this number and this number here are the ones i really have to compare and notice the difference it is about one-third the price for car insurance so that's another area of savings Coupling your emergency fund with paying a car off in cash, driving less, having an older car. It just saves all the way around. Is this enough? Are you convinced? (laughs) All right, let's move on. So that's what I have to say about cars. I think that's the end of uh, my beating on this dead horse. So cell phones. So cell phones have changed. A couple years ago, everyone's got a uh, flip phone. And cell phones are like these cheap things. You go sign up for a plan, you get a phone for free, and it's good enough. But with the advent of the iPhone and now Android phone, all of a sudden, we have this new expense. It becomes like this need, quasi-need. Like we don't really need it, but you know life would be really inconvenient without it. So smartphones has become part of our lives, whether we like it or not. But the problem is, we used to, it used to be a free thing that you just sign up for the plan, and you get a free flip phone. Now we're talking $650, $700, $1,000 for a phone that pretty much only lasts a couple years before the screen cracks or battery goes dead or something. So how are we going to manage this? How are we going to keep this under control without just breaking and blowing up our budget? Well, first of all, we have to understand that the smartphones that we have today are little supercomputers that have more processing power than a space shuttle that went to the moon. So we have to understand that these things are not toys. We have to take care of them. And uh, my iPhone is up there. I'm not going to grab it now. And so uh, what, what's also happened in the industry with cell phones is that it has matured to a point that you don't, you're not getting massive improvements one year to the next. If this was you know five, six, seven years ago, You know, there would be significant improvements from one model to the next. Now, it's not really the case anymore. You can get a a phone two years old, and it'll do everything pretty much that we need. So, with that in mind, how do we save on smartphones? Since this is something we're going to have to replace on a regular basis, I recommend people buy their phones used. You might be thinking, oh, man, I'm going to get a lemon, and it's all going to be terrible. Maybe so, but I've bought four or five of them for family members and different things and I've never really had a problem. The way to do it is the the key. So these are two services that I use. One's called Swappa and one's called Glide. Um, I would actually recommend Swappa more than Glide at this point because it's more transparent and you get to communicate directly with the seller of the phone and you get pictures and you know exactly what you're getting. And so what I do is I go on Swappa. It's like an eBay, but it's optimized for smartphones and tablets and electronic devices. And you get uh, to communicate with the seller and they get pictures. They tell you exactly what it comes with. You can ask them specific questions. And this is what I look for. I look for a phone that is less than one year old. So it's the previous year's model, but purchased more recently than on opening day. The next big thing you, ask, you want to ask them for is what's the battery life. You want to see what the health of the battery is, especially if it's an iPhone that doesn't have a replaceable battery. Actually, I need to come back to that point about the battery on iPhones in a moment. Um, and also, the um, warranty. So a lot of these phones, because they, have, they were purchased maybe you know, five, six months before you're buying it, they still have six months left of the original manufacturer's warranty on it. And generally speaking, whatever major issues, if it's a lemon, if it's a lemon, it'll come within that time frame. So I usually get my phone, some of them I've gotten as much as half off, not just half off the original listing price, half off the manufacturer discount, you know, new price after the new phones come out. And uh, you can get Android phones the same way. But that's not really the biggest area to save. Now, before I go on, before I, go on, I need to come back to this point. This is breaking news, breaking news this morning. Uh, recently, it came out, so, so those of you who have iPhones, you might be interested to know this. It does affect me and my family, is that it came out in the news that Apple has been manipulating, I don't know if that's the right word, but adjusting the performance of old iPhones based on your battery life. And we've noticed this. My wife has iPhone 6 Plus, and the thing is, like, almost unusable. I mean, it's just jumpy, and, you know, things don't load, and it's super slow. And it turns out that they're throttling the performance of the phone when your battery degrades, but it costs, like, $80 to replace the battery, and we're too cheap for that. So Apple today announced that, starting later next year, that they'll be discounting the replacement of batteries for phones, iPhone 6 and later, down to $30 from $80. And so if you have an older iPhone, iPhone 6, 6S, 7, I would recommend you pay $30, replace the battery, and it'll be as good as new, better than going to buy a $1,000 iPhone ten. Just my two cents, that's probably what we're going to do with my wife's phone. So, but back to what I was saying. The phone device itself, you might save a couple hundred dollars, but it's your plan. It's the cell phone plan where you're going to save the thousands because that's the recurring monthly expense. And so what do I recommend people do? Go prepaid, okay? Go with a prepaid plan. Instead of the big carriers like Verizon, AT&T, I will say T-Mobile is pretty good uh, as far as their plans go, but Sprint and T-Mobile, their coverage service is, uh, is not that great. So for prepaid services, what it is is you pay monthly upfront and there's no surcharge. If you use more, you don't get charged for it. They might throttle your speed a little bit, and that's about it. And as far as, uh, as, far as uh, my family goes, we use Cricut Wireless. And recently, they changed their plans. And so unfortunately, we're grandfathered in on the older plan. Their newer plans are not quite as good. But we have a family plan, five-member family, unlimited everything. The only limit is we only have five gigabytes of high-speed LTE, which to this day, I've never used up. And Beyond that, you don't get a surcharge, you get a slower speed. But everything else is unlimited. Unlimited minutes, texting, and all that. It's on the AT&T network, you get the visual voicemail, you get all that stuff. And we pay $20 per phone. Tax-inclusive everything. So $20 a month for unlimited everything, bring your own phone device, iPhone, the latest thing. I'm pretty happy with it, I have to say. But I have to tell you, that's not the cheapest plan. Okay? That's not the cheapest plan. So if you want to save on your cell phone plan, check out some of these other carriers. Republic Wireless, you can go down as far as $5 a month. Freedom Pop, my father-in-law, he doesn't use his phone very much. It's like 200 minutes a month or 500 megabytes of data or whatever. It's $0 a month. He had to buy the phone for $80, but literally, he pays $0. It's a free service. So for people who are paying like $200 a month for cell phone plans, I, I, I don't get it. I'm like, do you like wasting money? Because you don't have to do that. So if, I, if it were me, and I'm being perfectly frank, if you're paying more than $40, maybe $50 for an unlimited plan, you're paying too much. Shop around. Be smart about this. Because look, if you are paying $200 a month, that's $2,400 a year. Whereas if you drop that down to $20 a month, That's only $240 a year. I mean, that difference is like an order of magnitude difference. So don't waste money on your cell phone plan. You want to be smart with it. All right. So a couple of other quick points, recurring expenses. We want to eliminate all interest payments, pay everything off. uh, Eliminate all unused subscriptions. We have music, TV, software, gym memberships, all that stuff. Subscription programs are designed to make money for the business. Not to help you save money. So be very careful what you subscribe for. Subscribe only to the things that you really need. Ignore the marketing trick of monthly installment prices. Like you get these things in the mail. You can buy a car for only $100 a month. Like, okay, how many months? Right? They don't tell you. And then um, you can use discount gift cards. This is a really quick tip. You go to places like CardPool Raise. And you buy gift cards for the, uh, for the retailer at a discount. And then you go to the disc and then to the retailer and you use the gift card. So for me, we buy Walmart gift cards, for example, it might be three percent off. I take the gift card and I go to the Walmart Gas Pump. And if you use a Walmart gift card at the gas pump, they take three cents off every gallon. So I buy with my credit card, I get my two percent cash back, I get a three percent discount on my card, and I get three cents off every gallon. So it's not we're not talking huge amounts of money, but every little bit counts. And then uh you can use online rebates of a similar concept. You click a link. Through to an online retailer, you shop as normal and you get a cashback rebate to your account. Uh, f- so pretty much, anytime you shop online, you should always use a e rebate. All right, so we got to finish on this point. Social media, we have to talk about this. Social media, we need to stop following our friends. All right, we need to follow our friends. We can follow our friends, but don't follow 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 our friends. What I mean by this, social media is the equivalent to advertising these days. This is what you got to understand. The marketing people understand this. Facebook influences over half of consumers' online and offline purchases. This was in 2015. That number has gone up. In 2017, the increase, uh, they've doubled, more than doubled, uh, their social media advertising budget. And 90% of advertisers plan to run Facebook video ads in 2017. Everybody is using Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever, to promote their products. This is an insightful quote from a guy named Jim Herbert from Digitas LBI Commerce. He's the guy who actually, in the article with all those stats, he's a marketer, social media marketer. This is what he says. Peer pressure has always been a powerful influencing factor when it comes to making purchases. That is true. Social networks aimed at our personal lives rather than our professional lives are translating this online. Translating what online? Peer pressure is being translated online. Retailers need to ensure that social media is integrated throughout the entire customer journey and that they manage their social channels to make a real impact on personal behavior. Let me summarize what he's saying. Marketers out there, capitalize on the power of peer pressure using social media to get people to buy more of your stuff. That's what they're saying. Do you know that Ellen White has something to say about this? Ellen White has something to say about social media. Did you know that? Particularly how social media and peer pressure relates to our purchasing behavior. Notice what she says in Adventist home Homepage 384, paragraph 2. It is not best to pretend to be rich or anything above what we are. And I don't know about you, but that's what it seems like on Instagram and, and Pinterest. is people pretending to be something they're not. Frequently, not always, frequently. Humble and followers of the meek and lowly Savior. We are not to feel disturbed if our neighbors build and furnish their houses in a manner that we are not authorized to follow. How must Jesus look upon our selfish provision for the indulgence of the appetite to please our guests? Instead of guests, maybe our social media followers, hmm? Or to gratify our own inclination, it is a snare to us to aim at making a display or to allow our children under our control to do so. So what is Ellen White saying? Don't worry what your friends are buying. She says here, don't be disturbed to see, oh, (coughs) how are they decorating their houses? Well, you know what social media does? Back in her day, the only way to know what our friends are, are doing in their houses is go to visit them. Now we don't have to go visit them. They might be in Australia or Singapore or somewhere else in another country. We just go on their Facebook or Instagram account, and we can see exactly how they're living their lives. And you know how it is. Like, oh, man, they've gone on a nice vacation. And if it's a bunch of Asian people, it's like, wow, they're eating a lot of nice food. (laughs) Like, like every day they're eating some nice food. Man, I want to eat some of that. So this, this becomes... Peer pressure in the social media sphere and it leads us to feel like we need to also indulge our appetite and to make a display and to have a nice, you know, uh, social media presence to show what we are living like as well. And Eleanor says, it is best not to pretend to be rich or anything above what we are. So, stop following your friends. And I'm not saying don't communicate with your friends, but social media, if you are out of control, yeah, get, get off social media if you need to. But we need to understand that social media is a force that affects our spending behavior. Proverbs 38 and 9, this is... Our second-to-last quote, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. This is one of my personal favorite personal finance quotes of all time. Uh, The goal is not to be in poverty. The goal is not to have super big riches. It is to have our needs met, to have enough and to be satisfied with what God has given to us. And so in conclusion, the theme of our whole weekend here in this seminar for the love of money is the root of all evil. Which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through many sorrows. And I hope that through this five hours we spent together you've been able to learn some things to help manage your money in a way that glorifies the Lord, to keep our spending under control, to be able to save for the glory of God, to invest prudently, and to be able to do more for God's kingdom. And I apologize, I went over, I was going to have Q&A, but uh, I guess I talk too much. Okay, the blog is savingthecrumbs.com. Savingthecrumbs.com. So let's pray and we need to go get ready for outreach. So let's bow our heads together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the clear counsel you've given to us and the practical ways that we can use to save money every day. May we be able to use these means to advance your work and your kingdom is our prayer in Jesus' name. This message was recorded at the GYC 2017 Conference Arise in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.